Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Vintage Faith, hello, good morning. It's good to be among the saints. May our hearts and minds be refreshed in Christ this morning. We are going to read Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord... Lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as your people who've been set apart, sanctified, justified, chosen by you, for you, and in you. Lord, as we sing and pray and hear your word and hear it read and preached, I pray that your spirit just descend on this congregation in the ways that you have promised Teach us, Lord, by your spirit. Open our minds, open our hearts. Lord, help us to love you more. Help us to worship you more. Help us to exalt you and put you in your proper place. Lord, we know when we do that, that we will find joy. Lord, we we desire to taste and to see that you are good. Help us to do that together as a body of believers today. In your name we pray, amen. A few announcements before we get 
roll in here today. The, the men's theology and breakfast is this Saturday at 9 o'clock. We're going to be going through the book of James, and we're going to be going through the book of James for about a year. Um, so if, if you're a man and, and, and you want to be encouraged and challenged and you want fellowship in the church, we would just encourage you to come out this Saturday. We're going to start a new sermon series, uh, 1 Peter, May 2nd. And I, I just wanted to encourage everyone in the congregation, it's a short letter, let's, let's read that. Let's read it, maybe read it more than once, um, take some notes on it, uh, just be ready. Get, get your hearts ready now for that sermon series, which is going to be starting on May 2nd. Interestingly enough, as I was studying, we're going to look at Psalm 34 today, and as I was studying Psalm 34, and as I've been studying 1 Peter I'm seeing that 1 Peter actually wrote his letter meditating on Psalm 34. And he quotes it twice, and many theologians believe that Psalm 34, the psalm we're going to look at today, was the fuel for Peter's letter. It's what's behind everything he says in his letter that we're going to see um, as a congregation. We'll be in that for maybe 15 to 18 weeks. We'll see. Um, so I would just encourage you and invite you to, to read along uh, together, First Peter. So, as we <clears throat> begin Psalm 34, let me ask you this. What is your favorite food? You don't have to answer me, but be, be thinking about that. What do you love to eat? Why do you love that food? When we think about tasting, actually all the senses, all the senses in the human experience are somehow involved. Your, your, your sight, you're looking at the food, and, and the better a food looks, the more you might want to eat it. Um, touch, of course, smell, taste, when you're chewing, you hear. We're, we're totally engaged when we taste as human beings, and we're going to look at um, that today in relation to God is, is God through David commands us, he, he invites us, taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're going to look at that today. When looking at the Psalms, Josh did a, did a great job last week of just introducing the Psalms, what they are, how to read them, and uh, I just want to kind of dovetail on that. Harold Best has a quote. He says, when we read the Bible, we should be striving for a thinking heart and a feeling mind. Think about that for a moment. A thinking heart, that's emotion, that's that's just passion, that's, that's will. You want that to be thinking, right? Just not blind and not like, hey, I'm going to follow my heart and just do whatever, but a thinking heart and a feeling mind. When we're thinking and learning about God, we don't want to just learn for, for the sake of knowledge to get puffed up. We want to know this God that, that we come here every Sunday and we worship. We want to know him, so the mind and the heart go together, and no place in the Bible is this more clear and more evident than in the Psalms. Josh asked a question last week, or, or he posed a, 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 
uh, um, posed the question in, or posed this idea that there's probably two types of Christians, those who read the Psalms and love them and those who don't. And I would put myself early on in uh, my Christian walk as somebody that just, I, I didn't get the Psalms. I couldn't quite understand them. I didn't typically read them. I didn't go into them. And now as, as I've matured in my faith and the older I get and, and the, you know, you, you go through some pain in this life, you can read the Psalms and they're encouraging and they speak to your heart. The Bible never separates the head and the heart. We tend to pit that, you know, you may have even been in a conversation like, oh, are you, are you a knowledge person? Do you like, you know, intellectual or are you heart? No, the, the Bible does not separate the head and the heart. In fact, Jesus says, I, the Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit. That's, that's spirit, heart, emotion, will, and truth. Both. Doctrine and devotion. They cannot be separated. If we just follow our heart, we're going to be worshiping a false God, a God that we've made up, a God that we've created, a God that we will say, well, my God is this. And if we just follow our head, the Bible says we'll get puffed up and arrogant. They go together. John Piper on the Psalms says this. This is what you find in the Psalms. He says, we touch pillows wet with tears. We hear and feel the cries of affliction and shame, regret and grief and anger and discouragement and turmoil. But what makes all this stunningly different from the sorrows of the world is that all of it, absolutely all of it, is experienced in relation to the totally sovereign God. So if you're reading the Psalms, you're going to get emotion, anger, love, loneliness, broken heartedness, depression, regret, contrition, all of that. But it's, it's all in relation to a totally sovereign God. We actually see, when we read the Psalms, we see how God's people should be responding to the human experience. Right? The rest of the world feels all those emotions too, but we as believers respond in a very different way. And when we read the Psalms, we can see this happening. We can see in Psalm 3, after David is fleeing from his son, Absalom, who's his own blood, his own son, trying to kill him. And David is fleeing. We read about that in the Bible, but then you can go to Psalm 3. What was David actually thinking? What was he experiencing during that? And Psalm 3 is, is it. It's his cry. It's his, his prayer. That's how David responded. We can see in Psalm 18 when David was delivered from the hand of Saul who was trying to kill him. How did David praise God? How did he react when he was delivered? We'll read Psalm 18. Psalm 51, after David sinned greatly against Bathsheba and her husband, we can read in Psalm 51, how, what did that look like? What did, how did David talk to God? 
How did he ask for forgiveness? And we read that in Psalm 51. The Psalms are just a, a treasure chest of theology and emotion and all of it, like John Piper says, in relation to this totally sovereign God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who says, I am. We see that all in the Psalms. So who is, who is David? Maybe some of you just don't have, have the background. King David, um, he was a, a mighty warrior. He was the, the greatest king in Israel. He wrote half of the Psalms, about half of the Psalms. And when you look through your Bible, you'll, you'll see which ones David wrote. You, it, it's going to... Um, it's going to call that out. How does the Bible describe David? Great military leader, great warrior. As a boy, he killed, he defended his sheep by killing lions and bears. David defeated the greatest warrior in the Philistine army, Goliath. The Bible describes David as handsome and ruddy. He was a warrior. Yet, David is emotional. We, we see that in the Psalms. He was not afraid to express emotion. He was passionate. He loved. He loved deeply. He sang. He sang loud. He worshipped. David would be in this congregation as we sing, hands in the air, right? Like some of you do. That would have been David. David was a passionate, emotional warrior. And we have David's situation in Psalm 34. This, this psalm's not coming out of nowhere. There, there's actually context to it, and I'm going to bring you there before we dig in. David had not yet been crowned king of Israel. He had just defeated the Philistine army. He defeated Goliath. And King Saul's like, man, who, who is this dude? I need him in my, in my, my court. I, I need this guy. And the people were adoring David. And so you've got King Saul, who, who is a warrior himself, but then you've got young David, who's kind of rising up, and, and people are trying, they're, they're taking notice. In fact, in, in 1 Samuel, David comes home from, from defeating the Philistines and the women, they're singing, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated Saul, King Saul, has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So, the, so think about this. This is like, let's put this in kind of our modern day, like, like Saul is king. Saul's the one that everyone should be adoring and everyone should be talking about, but they come back from battle and it's like, Oh, but David, but David, David, is, is, David is, is the man. So Saul becomes incredibly jealous. He begins to hunt David down. And in fact, at one point, the Bible says Saul had his, his spear and he wanted to pin David to the wall. Just kill him, like throw the spear at him and, and literally end his life. At one point, David ends up fleeing. He, so he's in, he's in his, his own country, and, he, and he's, I, I got to get out of here. The king wants my, my life. And he flees, and he ends up in Gath, which is Philistine country. 
and he's before the king. And they start talking, saying, this is, this is David. This is the one. This is the one who has defeated us, who has defeated, he's defeating enemies all over the land. And David senses, I've I got to do something here. I, I'm in danger. What, they, they've ID'd me. They know who I am. They're going to kill me. He senses danger. He fakes insanity. And you can read this story in 1 Samuel. We're not, we're not going to look at it today. He fakes insanity. And the king says, get this guy out of here. I've got enough insane people in my court. I don't need another one. Get him out of here. So David rightly sees, hey, I, I, I can find a way to escape. And he escapes. And he writes Psalm 34. So that's the context of Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 1-4. This is David. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. For now. So David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. In the good times, in the bad times, in danger and in safety, in sickness, in health. When things are good, when things are bad, I will bless the Lord at all times times. To bless the Lord simply means to speak well of the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 96, which Josh preached on last week, in 96.2, blessing the Lord is singing to the Lord. Just singing, exalting his name, calling him who he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign God of the universe, that's blessing the Lord, magnifying him, exalting his name, which is what we were created to do. And David says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt the name together. So he's not just individually saying, oh, praise the Lord, although that was happening. David's desire after he's he's delivered is, I want to be with the congregation of God's people and I want to bless the Lord with them together. I want to sing with God's people, God's word. Let's talk church for a moment. I've met with with many of you one-on-one and had many conversations, and even outside of of this church, I've talked to to a lot of Christians. And one thing that continually becomes apparent is everybody has a different idea based probably on experience of what's happening in the gathering. Why do we gather? There's a lot of different, based, based on where you've been and in churches that you've been at, we have all different backgrounds, Catholic, Baptist, um, Charismatic, Pentecostal, 
big church, small church, and, and that kind of can shape, right? It shapes where, where you're coming from, and, and it, it, it gives us, like, okay, well, we're here for this. Maybe some of you, like, oh, we're here to grow the church, or um, we're here to build the Vintage Faith brand, or we're here to worship um, loudly and wildly, or maybe you're thinking, hey, we're here to learn, and a lot, all that stuff is, is, is legitimate. But why are we actually here? What is actually happening? Matt Merker says in, in the book Corporate Worship, which I've been handing out to a lot of you, um, and if you don't have a copy and you would read it, come, come see me. He says, Scripture teaches that there is a time when you come together as a church. The whole gathering is worship, not just the singing and the music, the preaching, the prayers, everything in between. God ministers to and through the whole congregation for his own glory. When we gather as a congregation, something unique happens. We enjoy Christ, exalt God, and edify one another together as his covenant people. The whole is more than the sum of the parts. God has commanded the gathering. There's something unique that happens in the gathering. This has happened. This is not even unique to the church. This goes all the way back to Israel. When God just, he brought his people together, they would have feast time and teaching time and worship time. God's people have always been gathered. It is not an optional thing. And Merker says the whole is more than the sum of its parts. There's something unique that happens when we gather. It's not just, hey, Anthony's teaching. Did I get something good out of his teaching or I love the music? No, the spirit is moving amongst God's people in a unique way on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, on the gathering, in the gathering. So David here is expressing one of the most beautiful truths on this side of heaven. He's been delivered and his heart longs to be with God's people, singing God's praises, exalting God's name, magnifying God's name with the congregation. And if you think about that, that is altogether different than anything else in this world. Look around you, and you, and I have the, the best view in the room, but if I look at all of you, probably most of you would not be friends outside the bond of the worship of Christ. All right? There's something unique happening here. You're, you're made a family. We exalt God. We sing to God together. And I would make the argument that you're made for this, that this is a little slice of glory that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what your heart longs for, to worship and exalt God, to magnify God, to give him the praise that is due his name. Not because he needs it, because you were created for it, because that's what your heart was made for. And when your heart doesn't worship the God of the Bible, your heart's going to gravitate towards worship in something else. 
be it a job, be it money, be it kids, be it marriage, be it whatever it is, it's going to gravitate towards false worship. I don't know if any of you have been following the Canadian church right now, but there's a, a church in Edmonton, I think it's called Grace Life Church. Dave Pettit had sent me the link earlier this week, and I started doing a little research on it, but Canada has, has locked down churches because of the virus. And it was much like us in, in the beginning where they took a big pause, and then they started <clears throat> meeting again. In this particular church, they met, they had a case, a coronavirus case. They shut down after the case. I think they shut down for two weeks, and then they started meeting again. They did all their, their contact tracing and, and realized, okay, we didn't have an outbreak at all. This is, this is okay, we can keep meeting. And, and the province or the, the Canadian government said, no, you, you can't, you can't meet. The pastor was put in jail for, I think, about five weeks. He got out. They met twice. I think it was last week that the province put a fence around the church. They said, you're not getting in. Big fence. The church went underground met somewhere else, and they live-casted whatever, whatever you call it, their service. And, and I watched that service yesterday. And the pastor opened up, and, and there, was a, there was a gravitas to, to the service. You could tell, I mean, they're underground. They're, they're literally wanted by the law in Canada, but they're, they're going to worship anyway, and the pastor opens up, and he said, you know what we're here to do. We're here to worship the Lord, to exalt his name. We're not here to grow the church. We're not here to, to, to although that's part of it, we're not necessarily here to, to reach the culture around us, although that's part of it, that's part of the mission. When we gather, we are here to worship the Lord, to exalt his name, to praise his name, and we will find the deepest joy in that, and then everything else spills out of that. The mission and the building, everything flows out of that. The worship leader got up and he said to the congregation, you know, again, we're talking Canada. This is very close to us. And he says, Have you, did you ever think you would be part of the underground church? We know that's happening in China. We know it's happening in the Middle East, but to a degree it's happening in Canada. By the end of the service, they sang, it is well with my soul. And again, there was a depth. You could hear that the, the worship leaders, their voices, they just took them down. You could hear the whole congregation just loving God, exalting his name together, magnifying the Lord together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That is one of the ways that we do that. We sing together. We Bless his name. And that's what David's doing in the psalm. He's praising God and his desires. I don't want to just praise him alone. I want to be with God's people and praise him. 
He goes on, Psalm 34, verses 5 to 10. Those who look on him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now he's talking about himself. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God has made you to taste and see, to experience him. Not just to know him with doctrine and not to just follow this imaginary God that you've created with emotion, but he's taken all of your senses, taste and see. That is why Jesus so often is saying, you can't have me if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. You need to experience me with all of your human body, mind, emotion, everything. Taste and see. Josh last week quoted the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question number one, what is the chief and highest end of man? In other words, why are you here? Why am I here? Why is anyone here on this earth? Man's, the answer, man's chief end, chief and highest end, is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. Glorify God. How do we glorify God? That's not as simple as it may sound. It's it's certainly blessing his name and exalting him and praising him. But it does involve knowing. You can't glorify a God that you don't know. You can't glorify a God of the Bible if you don't read the Bible or learn it or hear it or somehow ingest the Bible because then you're glorifying a God of your own imagination. Part of glorifying God involves obedience. How can you obey a God that you don't know what he wants you to obey? How can you love a God that you don't know? How can you love God with with your heart if you don't know him in your mind? How do you know what it means to take refuge in God if you're not reading the Bible and seeing, okay, what David took refuge in God here. Or Jesus is saying, this is how I take refuge in the Lord. To glorify God, we must know God. We must. And to know God, we must read his word. Jesus says, I am the word. Peter says it like this. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If, big if there, if 
Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. So here's part of Peter. He's, he's meditating on Psalm 34, and he's saying, hey, long for the milk, the spiritual milk. He's talking about the word of God. Long for it. How does a baby long for milk? We have babies in here, and, and, and the moms and the dads of those babies and moms and dads who have had children, you know how a baby longs for milk. Screaming, right? <laughs> They're not stopping until they get it. Their whole body is writhing and, uh, and just, they're going to let you know. And then when they get that milk, what happens? Mm. Oh, I remember that. And praise God, those were the days. And they would just get that milk and they would, they would make those noises. And they knew that's what they needed. And Peter says, you, me, we need to long for God's word like that. And then he puts the clause, if, and that's a scary clause, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I would ask you this morning, have you tasted that? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Or maybe church is something different to you. Maybe your faith is something different to you. But the Bible on repeat is going to call you with all of your being to worship God, to taste. And I have to wonder, have all of you tasted? I pray that you do. It makes me think of, of my kids as they grew out of that cereal phase and that, you know, just sweet, although I don't think they ever fully grew out of that, but <laughs> it, when you're like, hey, eat, eat this steak. This is good. Trust me, this is good. No, 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 you know, you, no, right? They won't, they won't even take a bite. They don't even know what they're missing. Until one day they do taste and like, oh, and then it's like, hey, are we going to have steak again? Right? Are we going to eat that again? Because they've tasted, right? If you've tasted that the Lord is good, you're going to want to keep tasting and taste. But if you haven't tasted, if you've got them at, at bay, like, okay, I'll, I'll go to church, I'll listen, but my faith isn't this, it's, it's something else, and maybe, maybe you haven't tasted so you don't know what you're missing taste is everything Peter is going to take this idea in his letter and we'll get to it the Lord willing in in, in the weeks to come but he's going to relate this to the idea of being born again that that God actually is going to give you new taste buds like at some point you don't have a taste for his word you don't want to read his word you don't care about his word it's not Anything that you're interested, I don't want to hear preaching, I don't want to hear, I don't want to read a Christian book, but if you've been born again, he puts new desires, new taste buds, where you want his word, you want him. Can you say in your relationship with the Lord that you've tasted? Can you say that? So Peter goes... Uh, or not Peter, sorry, David goes on in in Psalm 34, 
And the psalm kind of takes a break here. So the beginning of the psalm is praise and adulation and exaltation and just his thankfulness and an overflowing of his heart. And then right around verse 11, he, he pivots. And we're going to read that now. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. <clears throat> the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So now here in the psalm, we've got, again, a pivot, and, and David starts teaching. And he's saying, learn. Learn the fear of the Lord. Learn who he is. Think about this. He will teach the fear of the Lord. That doesn't come natural to us, the fear of the Lord. In fact, I, I think the fear of the Lord is probably a, a doctrine in, in today's American Christian landscape that's just been lost. We, we tend to, to be very okay with, with okay, yeah, uh, Abba Father, which is beautiful. Thank the Lord. We can go to him, Abba Father, and he, and he loves us. But there is a certain fear that we should have when we approach God. Not a fear in the way that, that we would think of, oh, uh, maybe someone's going to break into my house and hurt me because he's not going to hurt us, but a fear that he is awesome and majestic and big and that he can, at, at the, just the breath of his mouth, command the waves to stop that he will judge, that that's coming. A proper fear of the Lord is to know him rightly, and you can't know him rightly if you're not in his word, longing for the, for the pure spiritual milk. God's people also keep their tongue from evil and deceit. They turn away from evil and they do good. God's people seek peace, pursue peace, they cry out to the Lord for help. So David is, is doing a little teaching here, and, and we can all today learn from this. That let's be a people that seek peace and pursue peace. Right? We live in, if you think about the world around us, especially the social media world, people are biting and devouring each other. We can be different. What a contrast. What, what an ability to be different from the world just by seeking peace with other people, in groups of people. And then David transitions out of this back to deliverance, verse 17 and 18. He says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So David, again, he's just remembering. He's remembering. I, I, was, I could have died 
I was in front of that king, an evil king who hated me, who wanted me dead, and God delivered David, and David's just praising God. Thank you. He delivers he delivers us. God delivers his people. And if, if you've known God and walked with God, you've probably been delivered from multiple trials. And you've been delivered, and then you've gone into another trial, and then you've been delivered. God continually delivers. It's part of his character, the arm of the Lord He is a deliverer, a savior. It's actually an attribute. He's a rescuer. So are you this morning brokenhearted, crushed in spirit? Bring it to the Lord. He specializes in your kind, in our kind. Bring your broken heart to him. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you wearied and burdened? Come to Christ. He's not saying, come to me, all who figured life out and all who are successful. The brokenhearted, the wearied, the burdened. Can you remember a time in your life where God has delivered you? Maybe you felt like there was no way out. No human way out. But he delivered you. You couldn't see a way forward. It seemed impossible. But it happened. That's the same God David is praising in this psalm. He delivered David out of all of his trouble. When God's people cry for help, God hears them. He hears us. He listens. All right, the psalm is is moving on. Psalm 34, verses 19 to 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So this is coming on the heels of, hey, he delivers you all the time, always. He's going to deliver you. And then many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. All right. So we have to talk here for a moment about affliction. David is saying here, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We live in a a world, especially a Christian world, that wants to take that truth and completely ignore it. Walter Brueggemann says this on the current Christian culture. The dominant ideology of our culture is committed to success and the avoidance of pain, hurt, and loss. Much Christian spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. We have censored and selected around the voice of darkness and disorientation, seeking to go from strength to strength, from victory to victory. But such a way not only ignores the Psalms, it is a lie in terms of our experience. 
Scholars are right in seeing that the Psalms is a book of an act of hope, but the hope is rooted precisely in the midst of loss and darkness where God is surprisingly present. So when you read the Psalms, that's, that's what you're reading. You're reading the spectrum of human emotion and how as Christians we respond to that. And we live in a world right now that it doesn't surprise me that many Christians don't read the Psalms because we've been fed, be it through the most popular books, the most popular websites, the most popular Christian teachers, we've been fed that life is total victory in Christ, which is partially true, but it is not the whole truth. And if you read the Bible, you will see that that is a lie. The human experience seeks to go from strength to strength. We all desire that narrative, right? We want, to be the, we want to walk in the room and be the strongest one. We want to have it all together. That's why we so often, when we're hurting and we're struggling and someone says, how are you doing? We say, fine, okay, I'm doing good, right? We don't want to actually put it out there and say, hey, I, I've had a bad week. I'm struggling. I'm insecure. I'm hurt. I'm still struggling with this loss. And not only do we have the whole human experience of of affliction, as a Christian, there's more affliction promised. So all throughout the Bible, there is this promise that we would like to not see when we read. And the promise is that God's people will be afflicted, persecuted, mocked in a way that the rest of the world will not be. So not only as believers do we deal with the affliction of life, and life is hard, if we're living our faith, you're going to be dealing with another affliction, which is in the Bible called persecution. Paul says it to this when he's talking to says it like this, talking to Timothy. <clears throat> My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So there's that again. The Lord rescues. He delivers. That's who he is. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Persecution doesn't just mean death. That's the height of it. As I'm studying First Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm digging into the background of, of that, and Peter's calling these Christians exiles, and at, and at the point that he writes that letter, no one's being killed for their faith. They're just not being accepted by the culture around them. You can avoid this, of course, You can avoid this. It's right there in the text. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So you can say, well, I I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to live any way that I want. So you, you can avoid persecution that way. You can get behind the, the, whatever the, the current cultural, uh, hobby horse is and, and just stand behind that and, and you'll be okay. 
You can choose to take a stand on, on things that are opposed to God, and, and you'll be fine. fine. You can do that, and you can avoid this type of affliction that David is talking about. This is a promise. There were so many scriptures here, I had to take three to four out. So I'm like, I can't just keep peppering them with, with scriptures, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in every book. In fact, Paul says in, in Thessalonians, he says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it is come to pass and just as you know. So he's saying, we told you it was going to happen. Peter's going to say in his letter, why are you surprised at this fiery trial coming about you? He's not talking about just a random trial. This is suffering for being a Christian. For those who love Christ, life on this earth will be harder for you. This is a promise in the Bible. It will be harder for you. James Coates, the pastor of that Edmonton church, it was for him, it was five weeks in jail. For you, maybe it won't be that. Maybe you'll lose a job. Maybe you'll lose some friends. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's influence. Maybe it's that you're just mocked. There is a cost to following Christ. There's a cost. And many of you know it. You've, you've, you've felt it. It's happened. The afflictions of the righteous are many. But the Lord delivers him from all. Every last affliction you will be delivered from. There's a cadence or a feel to this psalm that if you read it and, and read it a couple times as I was studying it, it kind of popped out at me. And it was this. He delivered me from all my fears. Their faces shall never be ashamed. He saved the poor man out of all his troubles. Those who fear him have no, none, no lack. They lack no good thing. There's this positiveness, this full, like all, never, none, throughout this psalm. How can that be? If you're a thinking person, you've got to be asking, well, how can that actually be? That's not true of my life. If you think back to 2015, I don't know if you remember, there were 21 Coptic Christians dressed in orange jumpsuits, and they had their throats slit on, on the shores of, of a beach for their testimony of Jesus. So how do you read this and say, well, the Lord will deliver me out of all my troubles when we know from church history and even from the news today that Christians are being killed all the day long for their faith. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the writer in, in talking about the righteous, God's people, he says they were stoned they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens of caves of the earth. How in the world can what David is saying be true if this is also true? 
right? Now, the Lord does deliver. We've been delivered, and you've been through trials, and he delivers. But how is that true? Because he doesn't deliver everyone. And the key to this verse is found, the key to this idea is found in verse 20 of this psalm. Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. What does that mean? Have you read this psalm before and wondered what in the world does that mean? Why is that verse here? As I kept studying it and reading it, why is that verse here? I don't get it. It doesn't seem to make sense, especially when it's in the middle of many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. It's coming right after that. Why is that there? It has to be related. And the idea, the more I studied it, and the commentaries affirmed what I was thinking, is this. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph asks his sons. They're in Egypt. They've been given this promise that, hey, God's people are going to take Canaan, the promised land that's going to be given to you. And Joseph tells his sons, hey, bring, bring my bones up to the promised land. I don't want my bones here in Egypt. I want them in the, in the land that God has promised to give to us. And then we keep reading the Bible, and Ezekiel has a vision. It's the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. He sees a bunch of bones, and then what happens to the bones? They start coming together, flesh, sinews. And we know that that's the resurrection, right? The bones are coming together. That's the resurrection, a picture of dry bones being put together. And then in the book of Exodus... When they're talking about the Passover lamb, God gives instructions and says, don't break any of its bones. This Passover lamb, this lamb that is dying for you, don't break the bones. Keep the bones intact. In the book of Hebrews, we we know that Joseph did this by faith. So back to Joseph. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So, what, by faith? Wait, what's he having faith? Why, why is there faith in saying where, where to put my bones? Something bigger is going on here. When Jesus dies on the cross, we know they don't break his bones. They don't break his bones. And John calls this out in 1936. He says, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus is the Passover lamb. The bones represent resurrection. The bones in the Bible represent resurrection. Joseph had faith in his bones being in the promised land because Joseph knew that he would be resurrected and he wanted to be resurrected in the land that God had promised. 
So when we read in this psalm that God delivers the righteous out of all their afflictions, in a sense, in the world that we live in now, on this side of glory, he does that. You're going to go into a trial, and you're going to come out of a trial. Life is either going in or coming out. There will be trials. There will be afflictions. He will deliver us. But that final delivery is a resurrection hope. And that's why this verse is here. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is David talking about the righteous. And he's saying, your, your bone, you might break a bone. It's, this is symbolic. But your bones, the righteous, you're going to be resurrected. The final hope is in the resurrection. We're going to sing here in a minute Psalm 34. We, we sang it last week for, for the first time. It actually follows along the psalm, verses 1 through 11. We're singing God's word together. We're going to exalt his name together, just like the song says. We're going to magnify the Lord together. And as we do it, think about this. This song that we're going to sing has been sung by God's people for 3,000 years. It was written probably a, a thousand years before Christ. It was sung in the temple by God's people, Israel. And it's been sung in the church, and it's still sung in the church today. Now, we're going to sing it to different music, and it's in English, and it's not in Hebrew. It doesn't matter. We're singing. We are going to be standing with our brothers and sisters in Christ for 3,000 years, singing a song that they've sung and that they've found hope in exalting and magnifying the Lord together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we sing this last song and just exalt your name and give you the worship that is due you, we just ask, I ask that you move in our hearts as a body of believers Stir up emotion and a tasting of you in a way maybe that we haven't felt before. Lord, I pray for a joy as we sing this song, a joy in our minds and our hearts, a joy that's rooted in who you are and your goodness and your delivering power and your steadfast love in your holiness. Lord, we love you. And we pray this all in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at vintagefaithcicero.com.